0: Welcome to The Human Odyssey, the podcast about human-centered design. The way humans learn, behave, and perform is a science. And having a better understanding of this can help improve your business, your work, and your life. This program is presented by Sophic Synergistics, the experts in human-centered design. So let's get started on today's Human Odyssey. Welcome to the Human Odyssey Podcast. I'm Rachel Stutz and I'm joined with Brittany Walden. Hey, Rachel, how's it going? Good, how are you? Doing good, not too bad for a Monday.
1: Lisa Culkins. Hello, happy to be here.
0: Happy to see you. And last but certainly not least, Cynthia Cynthia Rando. Hey, everyone, happy Monday. So today we're going to be talking about safety and how it can affect your everyday life to working experiences and how human factors can help prevent this or make make it better. Um, I wanted to first open up to the room to see if anyone had like an everyday experience with safety, um, a safety issue.
2: So. I think that's generically a good question to ask, but I would I would advocate for backing up a little bit and, you know, talking a little bit about what do we think safety means? Safety is one of these, you know, ubiquitous terms that gets thrown around for almost everything and anything under the sun. And I'm not sure, you know, in context wise, we all carry around the same universal meaning of what, what safety means to us. And I think that's really paramount when we think about human-centered design and where where there's there's missing considerations from a safety perspective what do you all think
0: yeah that's a very good um definition because you can think of safety and human factors and human-centered design is the same um two sides of the same coin um in some way
3: I would say it's also our number one gap when we talk to, you know, clients or industry about, you know, what is safety? Um, you know, the number one gap in understanding is that the, um, human factors, you know, purview really pertains to the safety element as well. Like that's not always understood. So we make that connection a lot. And then, you know, you kind of see that light bulb go off of, Oh yeah, that makes sense. It's just not inherently understood.
1: I think that's a good point. And it- leads to another thing that I think um, a lot of people don't in industry don't necessarily understand with safety. And that's, you know, I think it's just really considered that when an incident happens that, you know, it wasn't unsafe, but safety deals with a lot more than just making sure accidents don't happen. It's really about, you know, your plan and process um, in your everyday um, work.
2: Yeah. And, and safety doesn't necessarily mean the actual accident or the event that occurs. Right. And so, you know, it's, you know, sometimes I think we make it look easy. So when really bad events happen, we don't quite understand the complexity behind the event itself. And, you know thinking, thinking big picture and and understanding, you know, how human beings have to live and navigate their world and how they have to understand things gives us an incredible opportunity as, you know, human-centered design specialists to bring that understanding to bear in the things that we design for people to use. And it's, it's more than, you know, is, is someone enjoying the product experience, right? So much more. And I think that's where we get hung up on and where we fail to really hit the mark as designers when we don't appreciate how those two need to go together for a good experience, right? If it's safe and you're, you're, you're naturally having good outcomes when you use something, you're going to have a positive user experience. And for me, I think that's the, the key conversation I don't hear enough about.
0: Yeah. Uh, Can you like expound on that and like give your
2: definition of safety from that? So, you know, when I I have to, I have to do it in context of human centered design, because I don't view them as different. And so when we talk about human centered design in the field of human factors, um, I think what is not well defined is the fact that human factors is a human safety discipline. In fact, we are the only true human safety discipline by the book. Right. So when we think about the human and what we're charged to do as human factors experts, we're we're charged to make sure that we protect the human at all costs through the design process or in the operations that we define and the procedures that we create and the expectations that we put on the human being, as well as optimize their performance. Right. And so those those two go hand in hand. If you're safe, you, you, you can perform um Pretty well, and you're you're going to expect good outcomes. And I think where we get get lost a little bit is the traditional understanding, or what you know seems to prevail as the universal thought about safety is it has much more to do with system safety. And when you think of system safety, we think about tolerances and redundancies. How do we design it in so the system can't fail? But we forget that. It's not just about the system failing, it's how can the system fail the human that can cause unsafe circumstances. And that's where the critical critical link, I think, in, in how we think and teach and talk about safety lies.
0: Yeah. With that definition in mind, do you think we can, uh, you want, guys want to go into more of a discussion of examples of this in, in your everyday life?
1: I think what, like what Cynthia was saying about, you know, making sure you're designing to the human and not requiring the human to adapt to that is, you know, kind of good segue into a common issue that I think a lot of us maybe have had as far as operating our stoves. Um, I know myself have thought I had turned on a particular knob and realized that I had, you know, either thought I was cooking for a long time and was not, or I had turned on a knob where maybe there was once a piece of plastic nearby and melted. And so, you know, really making sure that the design fits what the human expectations are and what, you know, their their mental models um, are, I think are really important part of safety.
3: Yeah. And the operational environment too, because piggybacking off of that example, in my stove setup, I've got the controls like right at the front um, where your waste would you know come to when you're you know at the at the stove and it's a flat top like a flat burners whatever the glass like stovetop is so when it's not on you know you just naturally use that surface for you know unloading groceries or doing other operations and you know that <laughs> having the controls right there I, you know i've bumped them before and um, thankfully it's never been an unintentionally turned on when something has been on the stove top that's not meant to be heated but you know that can very easily turn into a situation where um, you know that is the case, and then you've got a you know potentially um, you know bad bad situation,
0: uh, like the uh, accidentally turning on and exploding uh, a ceramic because it happened to be on the other burn- burner because you're um...
3: yeah lots of lots of potential for um, bad outcomes there so you know, say the human safety, you know, in relation to all these different things, it's, it's really on a spectrum too, depending on what we're talking about, you know, this is applicable, you know, in what we do, you know, day to day working with certain clients, um, you know, all the way to, you know, a catastrophic level. Um, but when we talk about, you know, instances of human safety, it's not always that extreme, but, um, you know, you can have compounding, um, you know, things that, that make it errors that, you know, would turn into a more hazardous environment. So it's, um, you know, understanding all of the different elements at their different levels and being able to mitigate um, so that you don't have those, you know, compounding effects as well.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, what all these different events that we experience on the daily at a low level that we're capable of adapting and overcoming, usually, you know, sometimes the consequences, you know, aren't aren't desirable, like we melt a piece of plastic and, Good luck getting that off your burner if you got some old school burners, but you you think about like what what had to happen in the design process, you know, to to get to a point where you you create a circumstance where somebody frequently makes an error of of omission or commission, you know, depending on how, how you look at it. And you know, another good example. This happens in, you know, my car because it has newer technology. I've got a braking system, an automatic braking system for when cars in front of me, you know, pull a fast one and, you know, maybe I'm not, or the system thinks I'm not fast enough as a human being to detect, but... Unfortunately, the technology is only so good in terms of how it's capable of keeping up with the human is capable of keeping up with. And so we can pay attention to cars as we know that they're going to start merging and and take the off ramp and they may be slowing down and we recognize that. But pace wise, we know they're going to be out of our way. Well, the system doesn't know that. So I can't tell you how many times I almost got into a rear end collision because my braking system decided it was smarter than me and slammed on the brakes and then I get slammed against my steering steering. steering wheel, um, you know, eventually, you know, that that's where we have circumstances where the designers didn't quite, quite, um, Effectively characterize these operational scenarios to where it could actually put that human being in an, a much more unsafe posture than had that technology not existed, because we are far better at regulating that, you know, human perception-wise than the system system technology is. And so these are these are the critical issues that come into play when you're designing everyday use items for people that have you know various backgrounds and experiences and abilities you know you have to you have to consider these things in the design process and, and how these products are going to get used and how people will react to them once once they're um, implemented into the market.
0: On a similar note in my car, it's not as serious as uh, your experiences in your car but it has a blind sight blinker but it likes to go off when I'm turning. I'm like yes there's a car there. I'm turning. And it's very, it overwarns and that can lead to overfeedback and people tend to, and then you would just ignore that feedback, which is also dangerous to the user.
2: Yeah. And what do we call that? We call it desensitization, right? So this is another huge problem in the world of human factors and safety is the, the misuse and overuse of cautions and warnings. You know, we get to a point where as people, we, we stop, we stop paying attention to them, not be, not because we want to be bad human beings and we want to be unsafe. It's just that the multitude of times they don't they don't play out to warn us against something that effectively causes us to be in a safer posture. So our belief system is now changed that we we don't trust the technology, right? So these are all consequences of when we don't design things, you know, to to fit the the, the human use scenario.
0: Yeah. Like that one time that car that decided to go straight instead of turn, it'll team bone me uh, because I ignored my system.
2: Right. Right. And and that's, that's the circumstance. It's not just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean it won't. But the problem is, is the use and the experience of the technology builds you to the, the alternative that it's a, it's a false, false uh, risk for you. Yeah. Um
0: cars are very lo- love to think they're smarter than you uh or predict- and also GPSs so like yes thank you i am uh, no i am turning i am in the turn lane thank you for telling me for the umpteenth time
3: and you definitely get used to certain features as well and you know thinking about how call- cars you know aren't standard across the board and so when you know you're in a rental car you're in you know, a spouse's car, or someone else's car, you know, you tend to rely on certain, you know, features that you have that aren't universal across the board. And so, you know, it's that kind of holistic thinking about, um, you know, what technology is, you know, really serving us in the grand scheme of things, and then what areas or what gaps of, um, you know, safety do we have um, for the users across the board. So just something to think about, too.
2: Yeah, and that's an excellent point, because, you know, even... When we think about the design process and we think about complex environments or complex systems, you know, our challenges, you know, human-centered design experts is knowing when to automate and knowing when not to, when the the risk outweighs the benefit for the human being. And so that's, that's always at odds when we're making decisions, just because you have the technology doesn't mean you should use it. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the society as it is, we have a love affair with technology, despite the use of it. But you know, we're now starting to see the negative consequences of so much technology in our everyday life, we're becoming less and less able to act human. Right. And so, you know, that's a whole other segment. I think, you know, you think about documentaries like the social dilemma when we use social media platforms and and the impacts on our behavior, but it's true when you think about like the systems that we're building to support and, you know, cars are going to continue to evolve, you know, not to kick this subject to death, but you know, we're, we're, we're on the path to the Jetsons where we're trying to get to automated vehicles and potentially maybe one day they're going to be flying. And all of these scenarios requires an understanding of what is the human role in these operations. It's, you, you cannot expect the human be, being able to make those jumps because the mental model or the operational model for that human being is no longer the same. And so their expectations and, and, and their behavior is going to warrant a different supporting system design to make sure that we do the right thing and we don't do the unsafe thing um, because we don't understand what's going on with the technology. Well, and to that point, like
0: safety is relevant. Like when you're driving, the safe thing is to go with the crowd versus following the rules, which a computer will follow the rules. Um, And and I think there's a, uh, there's a, there's a discussion about the fundamental difference between robotics and hum, hum, humans and the human's ability to infer and uh, do things with their mind, which robots tend not to.
2: Yeah, I it's think having, we... Sorry, Lisa, go ahead.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, I think, you know, some of these conversations are, they're making me think of, you know, when you're designing systems overall, and sometimes designers aren't necessarily thinking of Um, the workload that the humans may have, and how that can impact safety when you're requiring the human to do all these different tasks. Um, And then, you know, that also led me to think about, I just totally blanked.
3: I think, where well, you're getting at Lisa, you know, it's all those intangibles too, that as human uh, factors, experts and specialists, like we come in and have a, an understanding of that. You wouldn't necessarily think about, you know, the intangibles of workload or situational awareness. I know it's a really big one as well um, in certain domains is, you know, and, Everyone wants like a number. How do you quantify that? How do we know, you know, what's the acceptable number for situational awareness? And you just really can't um, provide that unless you get into the nitty gritty of the operations and the details and who your user base is and all of these things that contribute to what is acceptable and, you know, what is not.
1: Thank you, Brittany. You helped me remember what I was going to say. It was not related to what you said, but I appreciate what you said too. Um, So when you are, Considering you know all the different type of automations that you can have in a system or you know hardware or whatever it may be, I think you know ensuring that those can also be made manual. So like in the case with your car, you can turn off the, you know the the automatic braking or you can turn off the things that you know maybe are not functioning as you need them. So you are also giving the user can more control of that system. So you can automate when you need to, to essentially w- reduce workload and then also allow that user that control to um, manually do the tasks when they need to.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you're, you're hinting at a lot of things, you know, a lot of folks under appreciate and under, are underwhelmed by the role of human centered design and human factors, because they don't quite understand the impact when it's not there. And unfortunately, when we're not there, bad things happen, and then you know the consequent the consequences become deafening in a lot of respects. And so you know the our role is extremely complicated because you know we're dealing with something that is very dynamic and ever changing as the system changes, as the ops change, as the environment changes, so does the the behavior of the human. And so we have to understand all of that, you know from from start to finish, you know, does this person start the job fatigue? Does this person have other stressors that we have to consider that would, to your point, cause extra workload to where this is not as simple of a task as we estimate it to be because they bring in other burdens to bear from another part of their job, and so you know the the equation is is quite long and extensive, and that's why it's not so simple as giving the human an automated function. You know, you you've really got to understand the context of use and and what 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 could they be bringing to bear that you're not prepared for as a designer. You know, it's not all let's make the people the people shiny, happy people. You know, that's that's great, but that's not the real intent of the outcome that we're looking for. Yeah,
0: and that kind of segues into something I was thinking about. You can have the perfect employee and still have an accident at work. Uh, due to the design, not assisting the human uh, to warn them or um, help them in a situation that could prevent this accident. Do- right,
2: and all too often, right, we we blame the person, and, and this is evident in how we classify um, outcomes, right? Human error. We see this more often than not as a justified end outcome to a negative event or a safety incident, and what happens well, we've we've quarantined it to poor Joe Smith who had a bad day in an accident. We don't we don't care to ask why. We don't want to know how this happened because that raises more questions we can't answer and we can't solve and makes it difficult and costs us money. So it's way more easier for us to blame joe smith because now we've taken swift action we've solved a problem and we've shown everybody we've done something forget the fact that it's the wrong something and we haven't solved anything and we've only made matters worse for joe smith and everybody else that might come after joe smith that might have the same accident and so this is a this is a cultural issue as well as understanding the cost of human error when you don't ask those questions from, from a business case. So, you know, organizations are just as, as much to blame for this, this um, lust for swift action when we fail to understand that problems are hard and it takes a little bit more work to solve them adequately in the name of safety.
0: Not to mention you're opening up, like, from a company perspective, you're opening up lawsuits uh, because of this and other aspects that uh, human factors will look into.
2: Well, you're, you're at risk of it, right? Whenever yeah. anybody gets hurt on the premises or like product liability, if it's a product you're producing and you put out there and you, if you haven't done your homework, let's forget for a minute, your, your goal is not to avoid lawsuits, right? Your goal is to do the right thing and keep people safe. However, when you do the wrong thing, now you're measuring and your yardstick becomes lawsuits because that's that's the thing that's going to come back and, you know, be a pain point for you. If you didn't do the right things in the design process or, you know, from a company standpoint, you, you weren't paying attention to those red red flags, it all costs money. And unfortunately, that's the language we speak in the world that we live in today. Um, And again, it all comes back to the word safety, but safety has dollars attached to it. And, you know, that's the discussion as human beings that we have to understand is everything's a business. Um, And so how how do we motivate folks to understand that incorporating good human-centered design, even though it costs money up front, is part of the business to buy down the risk and buy down the cost later and keep profits up and keep people in a good place, you know, those, those should be um, like the benefits that, that we, we try to um, obtain.
0: Yeah, that uh, was really well said. Does anyone, did anyone want to add to that?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, really like good discussion and it shows the full, you know, we like to say 360 degree um, scope of, you know, what it is that human factors does and in particular like what we do. Um, as a company, and, and looking at um, products throughout the life cycle of their use. So, um, good discussion there.
2: Yeah, it's caring about the human, but it's also caring about the ecosystem, right? We all have a goal, we all have an objective, let's make sure they're in alignment, so they all work seamlessly together, you know, to, to achieve the right ends in the name of safety.
3: And I will say is another kind of value statement or value case, you know, from our um, experience in working with clients, once, um, you know, you get involved with a project or a program, whatever it is, and you show that value and, you know, again, kind of go back to that light bulb moment of like people end up getting it. Um, and then, you know, the support never goes away. It's never like, okay, well, you know, we, we tried that. It wasn't really, you know, I don't think we need it. That has never, you know, never been the case. It's always, um, you know, an understanding of, what the value that human factors brings, you know, all the things that we look at that, you know, no other domain is really, you know, responsible for. And, you know, that's okay. That's, you know, why we're here. And that's what, you know, human factors does. But, you know, it's never the case where it's like, uh, oh, we tried it out, not really for us. It's, it's you know, 100% case that, you know, this is value added. Um, Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, do we have any other like examples we want to provide as far as like daily life, uh, human safety examples or like professionally?
2: So, you know, I, I would change the question a little bit, you know, for the audience who's listening, trying to follow along and to think, you know, whenever you have an experience where you're like, Oh, I can't believe I did that, or I did it again. I keep I keep making the same mistake. You know, doors are always a famous example. I hate it because it's always used. But like whenever you you push a door and you should have pulled it, but the design of the door told you to push it. You know that that's a classic bad design. But you know you know think of thinking about things in your everyday life where you get annoyed. That's usually a sign that something is amiss with your expectations as an end user. Um, you know, once upon a time, we we had a submission. So we have like a little bit of a series online that we we haven't been keeping up as of late, but it was quite popular for a while when bad designs happen to good people, um, where the audience would submit, you know, examples and run-ins with this from their everyday walks of life. And, you know, just the amount of bathroom mishaps, you know, is just egregious to me because it's one of the most fundamental things that we need as human beings. And the amount of like bad designs, you know, especially in airports, airports are notorious for this, but you know, just being able to physically get in and out of the stalls with your luggage. You think that would be an obvious with people in the airport, but it seems to be an afterthought in the designs of these stalls, or they just think everybody's a, you know, a size zero and eats, eats nothing for breakfast. I don't know. But like, I can't even tell you how many times I've gotten stuck or smashed against like one of on the side to try to get out with my luggage and yeah it's you know, frustrating. Yeah and it's it's just amazing. For those of you who travel all the time I know you're like saying yes, yes, yes. Um <laughs> but you know I could go on and on to like some of these these things that have gone on putting putting soap dispensers over an outlet who thought that was safe <laughs> like not only are you getting the water from your hands on the electrical outlet what about all the soap that's coming out of that dispenser that people don't like wait for misfires you know just think you know simple things that we just we just tend to overlook you know because we didn't we didn't think through the operation that humans were going to we going to do in that area i don't know maybe that's triggered some more ideas from you all but like bathrooms are like my nemesis
0: well, actually, recently, one of the airports had the bright idea of putting windows, fully 3 see-through windows, by the way, in the bathroom that is visible from the tarmac.
2: Oh, that's, that's, that's a new one. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, uh, luckily, a pilot informed them that they could pr- fully see the bathroom through the window. Um, so oh, hopefully boy. that get- gets changed. I I everyone I believe everyone just assumed it was a uh, mirrored one way window. Um, mm. Wow, maybe
3: that's a future upgrade. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I believe that's a slightly different. It's not uh, s- safety as in privacy versus safety as in bodily harm. But yeah, right.
2: But I I bet somebody was trying to improve the lighting in there and that was their way of doing it without thinking about the consequences. So that's that's the big C word is consequences. What are the consequences, both positive and negative, about the things that you're about to do design-wise or change? How does that, that impact and what could go wrong? You know, I always ask my engineers, tell me all the ways you can break this or cause a bad outcome. And when we get to, I can't think of anything more, then we're doing pretty good.
3: Going back to the door example, it it turns out there's a third option. (laughs) Um, And Lisa, I think you got the pleasure of being there for this one. But last time I was in Houston, we went out um, to dinner with a couple of people from the team. And anyways, as we were going to leave, um, you know, there's a pretty big like double door leaving the restaurant and it's just got, you know, like the... um, Pretty standard like handle on it but um they're actually sliding doors <laughs> and you know pushed pulled was neither of the two it turns out you can also slide with handles that look like it is not intended for that operation so watch
2: also, out.
0: there's also the fourth option where there is no handle so you just walk into the door because you think it's an automatic door
2: <laughs> <laughs> let's hope that doesn't happen that that hurts <laughs>
0: I've done it once at a Staples because I couldn't tell where the door was because the it was all the same. Uh, I was very smart that day.
1: Oh, no. I, I did have an interesting bathroom experience that, you know, not directly safety related, but it was uh, the faucet, the soap, and the, like, air dryer were all connected in a U-shape. And I put my hand in the middle and water came out. So I was like, okay, where's the soap? And... I put my hand to the next one where I thought the soap was, and it was the dryer, which then splattered the water all over my face. So, yeah, even though the symbols later looking at them more closely, I was like, oh, I guess that, yeah, that would be air. But I I, I didn't. (laughs) It took me getting water on my face to realize that.
2: But that's, but that's actually a good one, you know, symbols are not as universal as we like to think they are. And, you know, although there are accepted symbols for a lot of things, you can go to ISO, ANSI standards and find them. They don't always translate to people the way we we think they do. And so always testing them, you know, user testing a big thing, like when we implement, implement really grand ideas, test it to see if it works. Test it to see how the people you think are going to use this and have no problem. And this doesn't mean, you know, engineer Greg down the hall from you, who's also been part of the project and just is in love with this, you know, Um, this means bringing in people off the street who don't, who don't really care about your product and testing it and telling you how it is. It's called tough love and it's going to give you the better design and the better product in the end. And also- yeah, exactly.
3: And, you know, when companies do this right, you know, you see them have a really, um, you know, committed user base, you know, that love their products. And, um, you know, Dyson comes to mind. I have several of their products that, you know, just love whatever interface it is. You know, obviously Apple's a, um, really good at understanding who their user base is. And um, so, you know, there's definitely a, a payout and a benefit to, to getting it right.
0: Also, uh, what I was going to say is, when I was thinking of bathrooms, there's different cultures, like uh, the the disabled community is going to be different from the able-bodied community uh, uh, and how they use the item and how they interpret the use of the item. Um, So it might be uh, not as safe for somebody who has a disability. uh, And that should be accounted for.
1: We were thinking along very similar lines, Rachel, when, when Cynthia was talking about, you know, your user population. I also thought of, you know, culturally people can have very different ideas of what symbols mean so when you are doing that testing to determine if your in, you know end user can understand it's really important that you capture you know the all the different types of users that may interface with your system
2: yeah. And, you know, understanding ecosystem of use and understanding when your users will come along with you when you make changes and when you when it won't. And so going back to what Brittany was saying with the Apple products, although they're good and they understand the ecosystem of use, I I like I, I didn't change my iPhone with every generation. So that's a fallacy or of an expectation of the user um, demographic that iPhone doesn't quite get. And so, and maybe they get it, but they don't care. Uh, I don't know. Um, but, you know, I made a huge jump, you know, I forget if I got to like 12, I don't even know where we are in the series. That's how, you know, out of touch I am. So sorry, 47. Apple. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> Apple. Um, but when they lost the button home screen and, and then went to like, you know, like the slide and only this do you, you, you want to see the nightmare? I wish there had been a camera in my house with me trying to figure out how to, how to, you know, use my phone again. It was like I had never used an iPhone in my entire life. Like I wanted to break the damn thing, excuse my language. And then I, I wanted to go back to a flip phone because I was just getting disgusted with the fact that I couldn't do a simple operation that was a no brainer before And again, like these are just super, super simple things that you have multiple generations using your products. They're going to progress with you in in different, different ways. And so, and it's not going to be linear because people don't necessarily have the money or the tech lust to keep up with the joneses and you've got to understand that as a product designer and you know there is attrition and sometimes you you don't want to take certain users with you and that's fine too but you've got to understand like the challenges you know for even mildly adept people i use technology all the time i I could not figure out why why i could not use my phone
0: um Mine was slightly different. I jumped to Samsung, and I was and I was like, I don't know how to restart this phone. I had to Google how to restart my phone because I, it was super weird. Of press the down volume button and the home button at the same time. I'm like, that's not okay.
2: (laughs) Uh, What did we do before Google? The grand old Google. if they, it's ask your father or mother or parent. <laughs> yeah, They're no I, use in this category of tech, no.
1: My brother had a very similar reaction with iPhones when they got rid of the um, headphone insert. But he basically mm. told me he was refusing to get another iPhone until they put it back. And I was like, well, good luck with that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Hold your breath. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, I think we've highlighted lots of great everyday examples and, and seemingly small challenges that cost us time and money right and an aggravation or love or hate of products and so we could have loved something just fine but as things progress and they, you can't see yourself in the product or it doesn't match how you want to interact with the product and you know the Microsoft office suite is another example you know the rate of change with the Microsoft products is you know continuous and ongoing And, you know, whenever things would move or they'd change widgets, like I would have a dastardly time, like keeping up with, okay, now where do I find my watermark? I got to Google it because I don't know where it is anymore. And like, these are just the, yes, they're learning curves, but were they necessary? And so, you know, these are questions that you have to ask yourself. Do you change things for the sake of changing things? Or can you take advantage of what people already know? and design those innately into your system while still getting to that new fancy tech, but not leaving leaving your users on the dock, so to speak, and taking off with the water skis and just dragging them along. <laughs> yeah. Um, I Sorry, Rachel, go
0: ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say, uh, with me personally for Microsoft updates, I have to wait a year before I trust it to be usable, in, the, in a
3: sense.
2: <laughs> Oh, yeah, um, I don't update any software update right away.
3: Yeah. Um, I think some companies or platforms are, you know, getting smarter to that in that, you know, after you have an update, it'll kind of guide you through a really quick, like high level, you know, these were the updates since, you know, the last version of whatever it is. And, you know, I know that's been helpful um to kind of see some where some new features are. And so I think that's maybe the happy medium with wanting to implement new things, but needing to you know, inform people of, you know, what it is so that they're not just left looking for it.
2: Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think we're kind of coming up on on time here, but to think about this full circle, you know, what is the point of all the storytelling and the commiserating, right? Well, we're, what are we trying to say? You know, we're trying to, you know, shed light on the fact that, you know, to do design and to do it well and to keep the evolution of things moving forward, you've got to bring the user along with you. And to do that, you've got to understand their objectives in in using your technology, why are they going to use in the first place? How are they going to use it? And what are their expectations of use when they start using it and how this fits in and apply to them? And you need to accommodate that through the design process. And it's it's not an easy thing. Like just because you're a designer doesn't mean you, you have all this knowledge you almost never do because you're the designer. You're biased. You don't represent your end user. And so, you know, when, if that's not enough, you know, motivation for you. Think about the consequences. What happens when someone hurts themselves? Let's, let's talk about you being a startup. You've got one chance to market. You can't afford anybody getting hurt and you certainly can't afford the lawsuit that's going to come after it. Right. Um, so these are, these are critical things to start safeguarding your company and your product to make sure you are the best at what you do.
0: Yeah, that was perfectly said. Um, As you said, Cynthia, we are coming up on time. So if anyone wants to wrap up with uh, any other uh, final thoughts, this would be the time.
3: Yeah, it's been a good discussion of kind of the spectrum of of safety. So I've enjoyed it. All right.
0: With that, I will say thank you for joining me. Uh, And this has been Episode 7 of the Human Odyssey podcast, uh, a human-centered design podcast. Our podcast is available online at SophicSynergistics.com/slash-podcast, and is available to stream on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Podcasts, and YouTube. Be sure to check our social media pla- uh, p- platforms for more human-centered content. Thanks, everyone. The Human Odyssey is presented by Sophic Synergistics, the experts in human-centered design. Find out more at SophicSynergistics.com. Get smart. Get Suffix smart.